50% of all mental health problems in adults manifest by the age of 14. 75% of these problems are present by the age of 24. One in six children are likely to have a mental health disorder. Every week, another student commits suicide. These figures are shocking, but what's even worse is that they're on the rise. I'm Elisa Anwar, and on this month's episode, I'll be analysing the growing mental health crisis amongst young people. I'll be chatting to experts and students to find out why more funding and earlier intervention is economically and morally the best solution to this crisis. So what if the government invested more in young people's mental health? What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation. Children and young people across the country are being failed by a state that should be there to look after them. I spoke to Sir Norman Lamb, a former MP and long-standing minister, and currently the chair of the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition, to understand a bit more about the current crisis and what should be done. Thank you so much for taking the time to come onto our podcast episode. It's a real honour to have you on. Great pleasure. Good to talk to you. So through being the chair for the Children and Young People's Mental Health Coalition and also working on crucial projects such as Future in Mind whilst you're in government, just to name a few, you've done a lot of work with regards to mental health and young people. So from your perspective, in what ways are young people facing a mental health crisis? Well, I think there's clear evidence that the prevalence of mental ill health amongst young people is increasing. Uh, Before I left the Department of Health um, as minister in 2015, I managed to get the funding to commission a new prevalence survey. uh, And that demonstrated increasing levels, Not, not dramatically increasing, but increasing levels we can probably only speculate as to what might be the causes of this. But if we think about the really dramatic change to our lives that digital um, means of communication have uh, introduced, you know, the extent to which we're uh, dependent on our uh, smartphones, the extent to which we now all engage in social media, Um, And particularly, of course, young people who have just been brought up with a new phenomenon, really, that simply didn't exist sort of 10, 15 years ago. Along with the positive things, there are also big risks to our well-being through uh, cyberbullying, through the sense that you can't switch off. Then there's also the, pre- the, the sort of peer pressure, the pressure to succeed at school or at college. And then on top of all of that, we have the impact of the COVID pandemic. And I think a lot of people are very worried. A lot of people, including me, are very worried that it will be children and young people who bear the biggest impact of this pandemic. If I think about someone who might be close to leaving school or college, the future at the moment looks much more uncertain than it did do before. That will play on people's minds. There's the anxiety about, you know, what happens to exams, what happens to access to university, whether there will be jobs available. All of these things increase pressure uh, and potentially increase anxiety levels. 
for many young people. More funding is something that's definitely needed for mental health services for children and young people. I looked at your 2020 annual report and you said that I think it was only 26% of your members were positive that the funding commitment that was set out by the NHS long-term plan was actually going to make a difference to young people's mental health. So that's a, a very large percentage of your organisation that you know don't think that that's enough money. So is it just funding? What, what more should be done to solve this crisis? So it's not just funding. Funding is important. And one thing that I'm acutely aware of is that we spend only a pretty small percentage of the total amount of money we spend on mental health, on children's mental health. I have a strong view that as a system, we should be focusing more on how we prevent ill health, prevent a deterioration of health, alongside supporting people who already have mental ill health. So, so money is important. There's also an important question about how we spend the money. So by way of example, we know that in England, when a child ends up in crisis uh, and ends up in a mental health bed, the average length of stay in that bed is about 10 weeks, something close to 10 weeks. Whereas in Australia and Canada, the average length of stay is about 11 or 12 days. So much, much shorter. Now, that means that as a system, we're spending a big chunk of our money on keeping children and young people in beds. And if you think about perhaps a teenager, sometimes having to be sent away from home for 10 weeks, I think that in itself often re-traumatizes young people. We need to put more emphasis on how we can support young people's mental health to avoid the need for them to go into a hospital bed in the first place. So, you know, how we spend the money is also really important. In Australia, um, someone called Pat McGorry came up with the idea of what they now call Headspace. And this is a national program in Australia. And you have local Headspace centres and it's, it's sort of like a youth service. So if you're a young person in Australia and you're worried about things in your head, you might be worried about your sexuality, you might be worried about drug or alcohol issues, or you might just be worried that you're experiencing some sort of anxiety or depression, you've got a service for you in Australia and it's called Headspace and you can book an appointment directly. You don't have to go through your GP. It's very non-stigmatised and it's all about early access. And we've got centres in the UK, they're called Youth Information Advisory and Counselling Services and they're known as WIACs, but they very much depend on local funding and they're in some places, but not others. And presumably that will need more money though, won't it? So the root causes yes. for funding. You need more money up front, uh, absolutely. And in Australia, Pat McGorry managed to persuade the government to fund the Headspace uh, service. But I think the, the potential is that if we support young people earlier, before their health has deteriorated, we might actually save money further down the track. And you've mentioned early intervention multiple times throughout that. And, and I guess you've touched upon it, that it, it's there to save money in the long term. But could you clarify for our listeners why early intervention is so important for young people's mental health? Yeah, and I'll do it in a way by 
describing what I think is wrong with our system at the moment. So if you're a teenager and you go to your GP, perhaps with a parent, and the GP thinks that you might need help with your mental health, the GP will make a referral to the local mental health trust. But the problem is that the local mental health trust often sets a, quite a high threshold before they will accept that young person. In other words, you have to be quite sick before you're even accepted to go onto a waiting list. But for those young people who are sick enough to get onto the waiting list, you often then have to wait many months and sometimes as long as a year, sometimes longer, before you then get seen by anyone. And I should say incidentally that our own family has had that experience ourselves. Our, our oldest son, who was diagnosed in his teenage years with obsessive compulsive disorder, we were told we would have to wait six months. We, we, we were desperate. We, 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 we didn't feel we could wait that long. And amongst all those children who are sitting on a waiting list or who get rejected because they're not sick enough, further down the track, they may well be the crisis cases in the future because no one has done anything to support them. It's interesting there that you mentioned your personal experience. I um, was the head of welfare at my university at Durham. So I saw the impact of mental health and the lack of support and all the people who'd slipped through the net from the ages of, you know, 18 to 22, that age bracket I was dealing with. And, you know, we were taking suicide calls in the middle of the night and all of these people were not able to get support from the GP because like you said, they weren't, either the waiting lists were too long or they weren't considered bad enough. Yeah. It sounds horrible because, you know, well, there is that threshold. <laughs> well, uh, you know, you are in a way making my case for me. You're, you know, you're, you're describing very effectively the exact problem that I, that I feel exists with our system. And all those people that you were dealing with, many of whom were potentially suicidal, you know, just think that if we'd intervened and supported them earlier, we might have prevented them getting to that point of crisis. And that's why I think our system needs to change. As Sir Norman Lamb has shown, the current system is significantly failing young people today and is in desperate need of reform. When an individual reaches the age of 18, the care that they receive from children's services comes to an abrupt end. But 75% of these 18-year-olds still need ongoing support and treatment, yet the transition to entering adult mental health services is leaving many stuck on the edge of a cliff. The Milestone Project, led by the University of Warwick in the UK, ran for five years and tracked the real-life experience of young people moving from one system to another. They showed that a large number fell through the gaps during this transition. They were told they weren't ill enough for adult services, and some weren't even told the options available to them when they reached the age of 18. This just isn't good enough. I spoke to Melissa Boy, a researcher at the Intergenerational Foundation, who too argues that a solution is greater funding for young people's mental health. She says it makes economic and moral sense to invest in younger generations. How much is the government currently spending on mental health, and more specifically the mental health of young people? So actually, recent figures on how much is being spent on mental health overall isn't available. But if we look at how much the government said that they plan to spend um, in recent years, we find that 
it should be around 12.2 billion in 2018 and 19. But this is overall. And if we want to know how much is being spent on children and young people, um, it's been found in past that is typically around 6.7% of overall total mental health spending. But if we look at how this compares to overall NHS spending, it's actually even smaller. It's only around 0.9%. So 12.2 billion pounds are spent on mental health in that particular year, and only 6.7% was spent on children and young people. That's, yeah, exactly. that's shocking. Yeah, exactly. It's much smaller than you would really expect to be spent. The figures of how many people with mental health disorders is huge amongst young people. Yeah, the we were having this chat over Christmas that like the recent ONS data has shown that young people at the moment are, so between the ages of 16 to 24 are currently the loneliest generation as a result of coronavirus. Suicide rates amongst young people are I think one young person between the age of 15 to 19 commits suicide every Mm -hmm. two days. That's not enough money. Yeah, it's not. And I was really surprised. I was really surprised when you said that figure about 15 to 19 year olds. 15 to 19, yeah. Yeah, 15 15 to 19 19 year olds. It's just shocking, isn't it? And if you think about these children who have suicidal thoughts having to wait on average 56 days until their first treatment, you just see the gravity of the problem. The money that the government loses Mm. through not treating mental health disorders is greater than what it costs to treat them in the first place. Exactly. And you said that for a single cohort of young people with depression, you calculated that it costs the government roughly £2.9 billion in lost net tax revenue. Is that correct? Yeah. Could Could you break that down a bit for our listeners just to explain how that is calculated as a loss? Because of how depression impacts educational attainment and therefore earnings, as well as how it leads to higher unemployment rates amongst people with depression, uh, as well as physical, uh, poorer physical health as well. It means that people are more likely to be in receipt of benefits, as well as less likely to be contributing in tax revenue to the government and And finally, also because of the relationship between mental health and physical health, if you have poorer physical health, you're also going to be using the NHS more frequently. And that is the government and taxpayers' money essentially going to have to pay for those extra usage. And all of these different types of costs um, are what drive the overall, what we call fiscal loss associated with depression. Our research has shown this greatly exceeds what we actually pay to help treat mental health disorders amongst children and young people. So it just makes economic sense, doesn't it, to invest early in mental health to stop greater costs later on? Yeah, exactly. Okay, well, it makes economic sense to invest earlier in mental health of young people, but wouldn't people say that that's taking money away from older generations who also need that money for their own mental health? When we talk about early intervention, I think that's actually quite a common comeback um, when people say that, well, if we're spending more on younger people, aren't we therefore taking more money away from older generations who also need this spending? And the answer is that early intervention isn't really making any comment about how it should be funded. Um, It really is trying to emphasize the importance of investing in young people and the potential benefits that will come from 
investing at an earlier age. But if we do want to really think about how we could fund early intervention, we might want to also be reviewing what how um, funds are being allocated, not just in the area of mental health, but overall um, by the government. We really need to be reviewing how money is being allocated currently to be able to know how we could increase spending on children's services in mental health but also it helps to tackle this idea that it shouldn't be controversial to be doing so. Yeah so I guess it's not a zero-sum model within mental health financing for all generations overall. More money spent on younger generations doesn't mean less on older generations. That money can come from as you said other places. Yeah. So again it makes economic sense to invest in young people's mental health. Yes, exactly, yeah. Um, But you also mentioned in one of your blogs that it makes moral sense too. So could you expand on that, please? Well, yes, um, it definitely, you can definitely argue that it makes moral sense. We really shouldn't be allowing children to essentially suffer the consequences of mental ill health now, but also be, be hindered by the mental health symptoms later down the line um, through you know low earnings unemployment or poor physical health is not something that we should be justifying and especially if there is a way to prevent or reduce those outcomes by intervening now so economically and morally it just makes sense to be investing more in young people's mental health yeah that's essentially what the research, our research, as well as other research is pointed to, yes. Um, now, the data is quite recent still, um, and it's, I guess it's difficult to analyse the impact of the pandemic at the moment because it's still ongoing. But in your opinion, what has the impact of the pandemic been on young people's mental health? Yeah, as you said, it's really difficult to know at this stage, um, but early data has suggested that not only that the prevalence of mental health disorders has increased, but also the severity as well. So uh, recent um, data from the NHS Digital that has been released uh, shows that around one in six, five to 16 year olds are likely to have a mental health disorder. um, And that was in the month of July, 2020. Um, That's actually up from one in nine in the same month uh, measured in 2017. So to put that into context, one in six is around five children uh, in a class of 30, and that's quite a significant amount. And although we can't tell quite yet, there's a signal that lockdown has also increased the rate of suicide amongst children as well. Um, So a recent study by the National Child Mortality Database uh, found that during the first 82 days before lockdown, there were around 26 likely um, child suicides. But in the further 56 days after the lockdown had been put in place, that actually there were 25 suicides. And that's actually a similar rate of number of suicides, but in a much shorter number of days. So it just does imply that the rate has increased slightly. Um, they also found that around half of those suicides um, during lockdown actually related to COVID-19 and um, the different restrictions that were put in place. So it, it is put, all of this data is pointing to the conclusion that actually um, the pandemic has exacerbated problems for children and um, led to potentially increase in the devastating impacts that mental ill health can have. That's really scary just to hear mm-hmm. that figure and obviously like you said it's pointing to a growing mental health crisis in the next year I think all the data is sort of showing that we're going to see an even greater problem than we already have. So 
what specifically are IF doing with regards to mental health and young people? What IF has been set up to do is to try to make sure that young people and children are getting a fair deal. And we mainly do that through research. Our paper on the fiscal consequences of um, not spending enough on depression is a key example of that. What we are trying to contribute through our role essentially is to provide evidence about why it's economically feasible to increase spending on children and young people's mental health. Uh, there are a lot of people who might say that it's all good and well saying that there, we should be spending more, but is it affordable? Is it something that we actually have enough money to spend on? And our figures say that, yes, actually, we're losing a lot by not doing it. As Melissa and Sir Norman have shown, Early intervention and greater funding is the most viable solution. Not only does it make economic sense, but it makes moral sense too. The Scientific Advisory Group for Emergencies, also known as SAGE, have warned that children and young people, particularly those in Generation Z, are at great risk of becoming a lost generation as a result of the UK government's coronavirus policies. Millions of children and young people are currently not at school or university. Youth unemployment has nearly tripled and the number of children living in poverty is also on the rise. So what does this lost generation think? I spoke to Ella Cotton, who graduated from Middlesex University in 2020 and is currently doing her Masters at City, and Emily Price, who's in her third year studying history at Newcastle University, to find out their experience of the growing mental health crisis and what they think should be done. Okay, so Ella, we'll start with you first. Um, You graduated during the pandemic, Um, and now you're doing your master's. How has the pandemic impacted your mental health? It's hard to differentiate between what's like normal anxiety and what is anxiety down to mental health problems. And I've suffered from with anxiety. It sounds dramatic, but my whole life, I don't really remember not suffering from anxiety. And I just sort of deal with it. I've had counselling, CBT, whatever. And, you know, there's hard days, there's good days. But the pandemic, it's sort of, it's thrown a spanner in the works in terms of, you know, I'm, I'm graduating, like, again, from my master's in the summer, there's not many job prospects. It's that anxiety of not knowing about the future. And part of my anxiety is fear of the unknown and wanting to be in control. And the pandemic has just thrown in this whole, like, we just don't know, we can't control. And obviously, everyone's in the same position. But it's the ability, I think, to cope with that fear of the unknown. And that's been quite a hard thing, really. And also, I think, for me as well it's not just anxiety I also suffer from OCD and that's something I've had again for as long as I can remember and then suddenly the pandemic came and my I have different like strains I guess or different symptoms of my OCD and I'm not gonna bore you with all of it but one of mine that got quite bad was germs you know I'd be on the tube to when I used to go to Middlesex Uni for my undergrad and I couldn't touch anything on the tube because I was absolute fear of contamination and part of my CBT was you know, touch something on the tube, like the pole or something, and sit with that anxiety and know that nothing bad's going to happen. And then suddenly the pandemic comes along and I'm being told by the government and scientific advisors and every healthcare professional that if I touch something, I'm going to catch coronavirus. And you obviously did the majority of your undergrad degree um, without the pandemic. So yeah. did you notice, notice a difference, sorry, between um, the period where you were studying with the pandemic and without? Yeah, so I think it was, again, it was, you know, when it wasn't the pandemic, I had my normal worries about deadlines and 
you know, I'm not going to get this on time or, you know, I'm worried that I'm not going to get the best grade. I want to graduate with a good grade and that, that sort of, you know, the normal student worries and the pandemic comes and I've got, okay, I'm now having to do this from home. I'm now distracted because my phone's alerting me every two seconds to how many people are dead and how many people now have it. And then it's also, okay, but I need to focus on doing my deadlines, but then it's, okay but you know like not to use the, the famous term but unprecedented times it's very hard to sort of stay normal to like or trying to be as normal as possible and then also try and also appreciate what's going on around you so I think for me again it was that sort of okay let's not try and go down before the pandemic I think like maybe the few months before mentally I was at my best that I've been in years and then suddenly it was facing that whole okay this is complete fear of the unknown this is a lot of triggering things for me personally and so then it was that finding the middle ground between, like I said before, normal anxieties and what every student and everyone in the world's going through right now, and then my own sort of problems. So yeah. So Emily, you're doing your undergrad now at Newcastle. How has the pandemic impacted your mental health as a student? Um, well, I definitely get what Ella's saying. The lack of like n- not knowing, and then the lack of reassurance that the universities given as well like if maybe if there's more things in place it would feel like I had something to fall back on maybe some a bit more support but I feel very alone I'm in my room a lot on a laptop for about eight hours a day like I haven't been into university since March I haven't seen anyone in my course for like nearly a year it's hard to be inspired and creative when I'm literally doing the same repetitive thing every day. Um, It doesn't feel like I'm at university. It feels like I've just got like this pressure on me that I'm getting like no enjoyment out of either now. Like the break, like going into the library, seeing people, all of that thing was part of university that kept me kind of going, kept me like so, like it's weird but going to the library was in some ways something to look forward to and now it's just like endless every single day feels the same and it feels very depressing and I think one thing that I find quite interesting is that when I um, graduated we had the no detriment policy but you guys just don't have that anymore do you no I ha- well I had it for last year when less of the year has been affected but this year I don't think I'll go into university at all. The entire course is online and they've put something in place, but at the same time, it's not as like reassuring as it was last year. And also I feel like not all universities have got like the same policies. Why is there not like a national overarching thing? So everyone's on the same level. It feels like other people might be at an advantage and things like that, which is concerning especially with like what Ella was saying, like the lack of job prospects for someone who's done a, like a bachelor in arts is terrifying. And I think you touched upon it there where you said that we were on online learning, we're stuck in our rooms. Uh, What challenges do students in particular face that sort of set them aside from the rest of the population? I think we're sort of in this limbo land of we're wanting to start the like, it sounds really cringe, but you know, start like the first step of the rest of our lives and our careers. And because we haven't got that solid career and we haven't got that I mean I know there's people losing their jobs and it's awful everywhere and students just don't have that stability we're graduating and then that's it we don't have any sort of 
promise of a job, any sort of promise of anything really. And I think that's what's sort of making it even harder for students is the fact we can't really have anything to look forward to as dramatic as that sounds because we, we just don't know. And when you're looking at careers that you want and you're seeing people that have years of experience that are getting, like they're losing their jobs and you're there wanting to start and go into that career and you know without as much experience as they do and if they're losing their jobs I think for students it's that sort of where do I fit in here and how am I gonna even just get a foot in the door at this point and I think that's where we're just sort of caught in the middle I think and sort of almost the forgotten ones because you look at the government briefings you hardly see anything mentioned about university students I understand like there's so many things going on and I'm not just saying oh my god we have it the worst we don't everyone has it a different like it's different how hard everyone has it but I think it is sort of not acknowledged this the situation that uni students are in and again that whole fear of the unknown and we just don't know what what's going to happen. There's been support for GCSE students and A-level students but you don't see that in the news and to like the feeling of being like forgotten about and then having no contact from people in my university to explain anything more feels like I, f I feel like I'm being like ripped off like if I was paying this much money for anything else and then not getting the service I was promised I'd get some form of refund or like extra support or something on top of that but I feel like we've been forgotten about in some ways and I completely understand why they're saying like I it feels selfish to even feel upset because there's so many people in a worse situation than me no no it's very true and I think you mentioned their A levels and GCSEs and how those exams have been cancelled because the government understand that teaching is not happening in the way that it normally would do so it begs the question of why university students are still having to do their exams um, like I don't know about you but I'm finding my motivation is just zero our work environment isn't that great and I've just had a week of exams and assessments and things and I was getting so distracted um, by the fact that you know there were news alerts coming onto my phone all the time and that we were about to go into a national lockdown and it suddenly happened and because I was in the middle of an exam I couldn't move back to my university city and now I'm stuck here. I'm like I'm stuck at home as well like I don't I don't even know when I will go back so I'm also paying thousands of pounds in rent for a house that I'm not living in which is a little bit frustrating but I don't I mean I don't have a desk at home I don't have the library resources I don't have like a quiet space if I was in a student house we were all in our final year we were all revising we were all sticking to the Covid the guidelines as well like we were being safe but now I'm at home and it's so much harder to focus. Touching on that it's you know when universities they'll send out emails and say or lecturers will say we completely understand that times are tough right now we're here for you I obviously appreciate that they're acknowledging it but for me I want to see some sort of action then I don't it's saying oh we understand times are tough but here's the exact same deadlines here's the exact same workload I'd much rather they say we understand so here's an extra week I'm not asking for loads I understand that obviously for lecturers you've got to have that set marking time there's a knock-on effect and I'm not thinking you know we're the most important things but I think saying that they understand that life is hard for us right now and it's hard for us to do the work that we're doing I'd like to see then some action on that and say okay there's some extension on your deadlines or because I remember I think I read that you know there's you can apply for extenuated circumstances and I think but surely that applies to everyone who 
it's not going to be applicable like who's not going to have extenuated circumstances we're all in the same awful boat right now and so I just want to see some sort of action from the universities really that actually says they do understand and they're doing something to help us completely it feels hollow doesn't it it feels like they don't they don't really care they just like it and then yeah such a weird feeling because I'm putting even more pressure on myself because I feel like I should be like achieving what they expect of me I feel like I should be working at the same pace as I normally would be but I can't I just yeah I'm really struggling to like get down and focus on in the way that I know I can but I just it's so different completely like if I'm having a bad mental health day that so many people are and I want to just have a day where I'm not looking at my work and just a day to just watch random things on tv listen to music read a book just something to clear my mind but in my head I know that I've got all these deadlines and even though it feels like the world's ending around us those deadlines are still exactly the same so I can't look after my mental health as much as I would like to because I don't want to fall behind because then that's another anxiety that if I'm suddenly not doing well in my course it's it's a knock-on effect so again it's that sort of thing where I just would like to just have a breather really it's hard to just like choose between your grades and your mental health like it doesn't feel like I can have both do you know what I mean yeah yeah definitely and are you aware then of university mental health services I I only know about the mental health services because I have actively seeked them out I have emailed so many people asking where do I go where it's not that this information has been provided to me I don't feel confident in knowing where it is I've literally had to ask and ask and ask and I know that my university offers um six half hour sessions with a counsellor which I used in the first lockdown which was although you know there's only so far you can get with three hours over a phone with a stranger it was in some ways helpful and reassuring to have that in the first lockdown but because I used it in the first lockdown I'm no longer eligible I can't um like get mental health um, support from the university um, any more than three hours in 12 months so for the rest of this third year my final year which is also in a lockdown I cannot access the student services so you get three hours in 12 months that is all they offer and there has been no changes because of a pandemic it has just stayed like that we don't get the emails we don't we don't have anything like that it's just kind of fend for yourself kind of attitude so I think again it's that sort of we're here for you but we're not doing anything much more about it rather we'll send an email you know they'll say oh sorry they'll send an email and say you know we understand it's hard right now and again I appreciate if I'm having like a bad day it's like okay they, they've, they've acknowledged that life's hard right now but I don't believe they've really changed that much how much help they give for me that, that I've noticed anyway. I guess the situation is quite difficult as well because I used to work in welfare for my university and presumably now um, sessions have to be done over the phone um, student-led sessions would just not be possible at all really so what more should be done? Should there be more government financing towards mental health? What, In an ideal world, what would you like to see done? In an ideal world, we would have more funding, which would allow there to be more counsellors. And it just means that the, they can advertise and really be there for people and not just sort of in the background. It's like, we're here, we're ready for you right now. This is what we offer. Especially like suffering from mental health. I want to know that it's not just, I'm not just going to someone that's maybe done a quick 
online tutorial about counselling or something. I want to speak to someone that's professional. And I think seeing if I saw that there were those people available and there were plenty of them, then it would, I think, encourage me to actually seek help if I needed it. More funding would make so much more difference because you think there's more there's more counsellors that would be helpful but also the more the more staff there are to help the shorter the wait list you're not waiting two three months anymore because there's there's more people to see you whereas if you're applying for something because you've got stress in January because you've got exams and whatever and you're getting that in April it your situation changes you you know you, you may still need it but you're not getting it when you're asking for it reducing that wait time and actually people getting students getting the help when they want it because particularly of university if there's loads of stresses going on in their life they're going to want that help there and then in the next few weeks they don't want you know if they've contacted about uni stress and pandemic stress all happening all at once having help four or five months down the line it, it's just too late so like Emily said if there was funding that allowed there to be more people and reducing the wait time I think that would make such a difference. As these students have shown, the pandemic is exacerbating the mental health crisis amongst young people. I spoke to Trevor Elliott, MBE, to find out a little more. Mr Elliott has done remarkable work with vulnerable children and young people. He set up youth groups, fostered children, renovated his home into an Ofsted-approved children's care home, and at the young age of 29, received his MBE. So from your experience, how do you feel coronavirus is impacting children's and young people's mental health? Um, I think it's a massive challenge for them at the moment because, you know, with children, you've always got to um, set them small goals and small targets. And one of them might be that, you know, if you're in secondary school, you're going to get the end end of secondary school and have GCSEs. And at the end of GCSEs, you're able to celebrate. At the moment, trying to get them uh, mentally prepared for nothing is creating a problem at the moment because actually they've got no direction. So, for example, keeping a consistent routine in terms of um, sleeping um, uh, and waking up and keeping up with the normal school routine is impossible because they sit there and say, well, what's the point? I don't know when I'm going back to school. I don't know how I'm going to be going back to school. And I don't know if I'm going to be sitting any exams. So psychologically, they're they're quite smart children. So they're like, well, what is the point? And actually as staff, you sit there thinking sometimes, what is the point? You know, if they wake up at nine o'clock or they wake up at 11 o'clock, what difference is it going to make for them right now? Because we don't know when they're going to be able to go back to school properly. So I think the difficulty for them is we can't manage their expectations. And that's our job. Our job is to manage children's expectation. That's how they learn. And so we can't tell them that in four weeks time, they're going to be able to go back to school because no one actually knows. And on every social media platform and every news platform, it's a different message. So I think that's going to be the challenge. And then socially the children obviously not socializing as much as they would usually so this the the social impact it's going to have on them is 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 dramatic because you know children learn to socialize through experiencing socializing and at the moment they're not and so that's that's what they're struggling with as well not being able to see because if children are in care they're not able to see their family yeah i think it's going to be a struggle over the next certain certain years um but as I always say to the children, we can either get through it on our own or we can get through it together. Um, and so we're all going through the same thing. So we'll just get through it together. No, I think it's interesting what you said about not having an end goal, because a lot of my friends, we, we've not had a graduation 
And yeah. a lot of my friends are still not going to have a graduation because universities are starting to cancel graduations for summer 2021 as well. Wow. So it's like you're doing all this work and what's what's the end goal? There isn't yeah. really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's what we live for. We, 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 we live, we're a society that lives for, you know, goals and targets. And, 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 and I think at the moment, it's, it's kind of like, for me, my goal is to ensure that every day the young people feel loved and nurtured and cared for. But at the end of the day, I can't, in terms of career progression, um, in terms of managing their expectation when they're seeing their family, I can't actually tell them, you know, and that, that's what makes our job difficult. And that's when they're just like, well, what's the point? Can't be bothered. Um, and then you lose them. That's when you lose them. So we, we need something in place to help manage their expectations. So what more do you think the government should do then? It's a very difficult job. And, and, and whilst I would like more to be done, I also feel like this is a situation that no one could have prepared for, sadly. Um, and so I think the one thing, if I was to speak to the government to say is, let's have a consistency with our direction. I've been speaking to a lot of students and young people over the last month, and they say the lack of direction Mm. Um, makes them feel as though they're an afterthought in a lot mm. of government decisions. And it would be nice just to have a, a clear policy, really. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So you've done a lot of work with children, young people, vulnerable young people. Um, why is it so important to target young people? Because they're going to be looking after us one day. So, you know, they're the future, aren't they? So ultimately, it's, it's, it's very easy to think of yourself. It's very easy. But actually... If you want to really think about yourself, think about the people that are going to be caring for you one day. The, the people that serve you food in restaurants will be the young people of tomorrow. The people that care for you in care homes will be the young people. So ultimately, the prime, minister, prime ministers, the leaders are going to be the young people of today and, you know, who are going to be taking care of the country and the world and, and sort of, yeah, everything that we experience. So it's very important we don't leave them behind um, because their, their memory of who cared for them, who looked after them, will not be forgotten. You know, children don't forget. Children have an amazing uh, memory. And if they've experienced neglect, abuse, they're not going to forget it. And I think it's very important that we put them at the forefront of our mind. We should put children at the forefront of our mind. They are, as Trevor Elliott, MBE says, the future of this country. But currently young people today are nowhere near the forefront. In fact, they're very much pushed to the back. We need earlier intervention, we need greater funding, and we need a reform of the system. It is economically and morally the right thing to do. Fighting for equality amongst current and future generations is something we should all strive towards and is central to the work of IF. If any of the topics and discussion in this month's podcast have caught your attention, then head over to www.if.org.uk, where IF have conducted incredible research into the topic. Or follow the Intergenerational Foundation on Twitter, Facebook, and even Instagram. See you next month. What if? What if? What if? What if? A monthly podcast series in partnership with IF, the Intergenerational Foundation.